Hello. Greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. My name's Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. And we're exploring the question, who are we? The question, who are we, is an attempt to understand what makes us us, as opposed to them. Yeah, it can be an attempt to alienate, hate, or condemn them, but it doesn't need to be. It also can be just an opportunity to figure out who we are. How come we are who we are, believe what we believe, and do what we do? And when we ask that question, who are we, we're going to have to grapple with our heritage. What have we been given? The past can be an anchor, and that can be true in both senses of the term, as providing grounding to keep the ship from going to and fro, but also as an impediment from going to a place where perhaps one would need to go. Who we are does not have to be entirely defined by what we have been, but so much of who we are is shaped by who we have been. Because even if we're trying to change aspects of our heritage, we still need to understand where, where we've come from, to understand if our reactions are healthy or unhealthy, uh, and to just under, make sure that we're doing things for the right reasons. We're not going to be able to effectively understand who we are, after all, if we don't reckon with who we have been and why. And on top of that, as we enter the 21st century now, it's a time of identity crisis in the faith. That most people who are Christians are experiencing a level of identity crisis where we live in a society that's becoming all the more post-Christian. Uh, the society believes Christianity has been tried and found wanting, even if indeed it, the Christianity that's been tried has not really reflected Jesus very well. And the Christian faith is looked at with great skepticism and derision. And so it, it requires a bit of faith. It requires a bit of of boldness to be willing to be a Christian in this environment and we kind of have to grapple with what that looks like. And as members of Churches of Christ we're experiencing another level of identity crisis. Who really are we and what do we stand for? Uh, for the majority of the time there have always been very oppositional stances against us. Uh, but now that the ecumenical movement has taken hold throughout most of Christendom, even in evangelicalism, we're finding ourselves being more accepted. And so the question now becomes, should we see ourselves in greater alignment with evangelicalism or other aspects of, of, the, the, of the general Christendom? Or should we continue to insist on our own distinctiveness? Is there something inherent in, in what we've been given in the Restoration plea that's worth keeping? How important is our doctrinal stance versus our practical behaviors? Is soundness in a church primarily defined by what is taught or what is done? What should our ideals be? What do we privilege and prioritize among those ideals when we get to the messiness of reality? And all of this really comes down to what of the restoration plea of the 21st century? Is there still value to the call to restore the New Testament faith? How do we best restore the New Testament faith in the 21st century? And so to this end, let's consider the call that's been made many times to use Bible names for Bible doctrines. Why would anyone insist on using Bible names for Bible doctrines, looking at how a language is used to manipulate understanding, and to consider what dangers may exist by how we speak of biblical truth? Now this call for Bible names for Bible doctrines went out because there was a tendency toward what we call obfuscation based on terminology. How does, what does that look like? Well, part of the concern was based in, in understanding. You know, that word obfuscation, you know, that's a big word meaning 
people trying to make uh, difficult to understand or to confuse with words, so people will accept a distorted meaning. And uh, a lot of theological and technical terms have developed in Christianity and are often relatively inaccessible to the average Christian. And a lot of times they'll take on certain meanings in certain contexts. So words like sanctification, justification, predestination, and election, the way Christians use them that's used almost nowhere else, uh, if they're even used outside of a Christian context anymore. And of course, of the addition of words that end in ology, there is no end. Theology, Christology, pneumatology, ecclesiology, eschatology, soteriology, and so on and so forth. A lot of the early Restorationists were uh, very uncomfortable with terms surrounding uh, Trinitarianism and the creedal formulations. And there were some who did so, no doubt, because they were actually questioning some of the Orthodox Trinitarian doctrine, but others were grounded in a concern about how the words being used and the arguments about the words being used uh, did not involve anything that you'd actually found in the pages of Scripture. And when terms of, of, of great uh, fanciness are used without explanation or clarification, can try to give the impression that you're trying to overwhelm people with dazzling intelligence, to ground claims in the wisdom of the world as opposed to Christ and Him crucified. In 1 Corinthians 1.18-2.15, two, two Paul goes to great lengths to remind the Corinthians how he did not come with persuasive rhetoric. He came with plain speech, speaking of Christ crucified, and emphasized and insisted upon that. But perhaps a greater drive for the concern about Bible names for Bible doctrines was the expansion or redefinition of terms used in Christendom that would uh, propagate false doctrines. A couple of the, the examples that are often given of this is baptism, for instance. We use the word baptism. And you ask what people what baptism means, uh, they'll talk about some kind of Christian ritual. Uh, they might talk about it in terms of sprinkling or pouring water on someone or immersing someone. Because those are the definitions that are used today. Uh, that is not the original Greek meaning of baptizo. Baptizo means to dip, to immerse. And so we have a, a, a sh sh different shaping of that definition. That uh, a word used to dip, immerse, all sorts of things, is now only used to describe a Christian religious ritual that may involve immersion, but also could involve pouring or sprinkling, which was not, of course, present in the original word. The new definitions read into the text now, and the translators of the King James Version were instructed, and you can even see this in the uh, preface to the King James Version, that they were to, to transliterate baptisma into baptism and not translate it into immersion. And it, it has profoundly shaped the, the, the way people look at baptism ever since. Uh, Greek ecclesia is translated by the English word church. Church comes from the kirk, kircha, from Old English, which comes from the Greek kuriakon, as belonging to the Lord. Um, the original meaning of ecclesia is assembly. It always referred to people. Kuriakon could be other things. And again, when people think of church these days, they think first of a building or second of a religious organization. They don't necessarily associate with a collective of people. And yet that is the core idea of ecclesia there in the New Testament. Now, in both of these situations, false doctrines and ideas were promoted and they were advanced and even taken for granted because people got away from using the words the Bible uses in the way the Bible used them. So that's kind of the force behind Bible names for Bible doctrines. And what are we going to say about that? Well, to be honest, there's a valid critique behind the idea of Bible names for Bible doctrines. Uh, the word justification. 
uh, you can understand as making righteous. But it wasn't just that. They also brought in a lot of ideas from Latin, imputation. Uh, these Latin nuances didn't exist in Greek or Hebrew, turning a reckoning into an imputing, as if it's something, uh, something actually transferred than just a reckoning. Yes, baptism has been used to obfuscate biblical teaching about the importance of immersion in water for the mission of sin. That anyone we talk to, we're going to have to define baptism or redefine it so they can understand what the Bible text says. Uh, church now means a building and organization more than a collective of people. And so we have to redefine church for those that we interact with and have to remind ourselves frequently that the church is not the building. The technical language of Christianity can become a caricature of itself very quickly. Uh, there's a meme that goes around, perhaps you've seen it, if you're in the religious nerdy circles. Uh, most likely you haven't. But it's a situation where you've got uh, Jesus talking to the theologians, right? And they have, Jesus says, who, who do you say that I am? And they respond by saying that you are the eschatological manifestation of the ground of our being, the kerygma in which we find ultimate meaning in our interpersonal relationships. And then Jesus goes, what was that? You know, ha, 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 ha. The idea that, yeah, uh, a lot of times theologians can become a caricature themselves. And you see the technical terminology being used in, in lectures and in books and... It seems very distant and remote for those who are un, un, uninitiated into such terminology. So there's a valid critique there that Bible names for Bible doctrines is getting to something. But to insist on Bible names for Bible doctrines in any absolute or dogmatic way is really counterproductive. It's missing the whole because it's focusing on the part. Because the critique behind Bible names for Bible doctrines is talking about the power of language to frame and how language can be used to lead people to the truth or to lead people away from it. Because honestly, be honest, when you hear Bible names for Bible doctrines, what's one of the first things that you think about? Where's the word Bible, right? Where's the word Bible in the Bible? The word Bible is not actually used in the Bible to talk about the Bible. Sometimes it'll be conversation about scriptures or the word, but it's never called the Bible. It's kind of ironic there, right? We we're kind of, you know, using the caricature of language like uh, uh, eschatological or kerygma. What's interesting about that is that those technical terms really are deriving from the basic terms used in Greek or Latin. So kerygma, there is the Greek word kerygma, which means preaching proclamation. And when you talk about the kerygma, you're talking about the preaching or the proclamation. So it's just using the original Greek word. Uh, justification is from justitio in Latin, to be just or to be right, and mean about how one is made just or made right. Sanctification from Latin sanctus, which means holiness or holy. And uh, when you look at the Greek Bible or uh, the Bible in Latin, these terms are what are used in the text. So even though they seem fancy, they are actually related to the Bible. And just because a Bible name is being used doesn't mean that the Bible name is being used the way the authors of Scripture intended for it to be used, and we're going to get back to that in, in a little bit. So Bible names or Bible doctrines is a critique about how biblical truth often gets distorted through the manipulation distortion of language. And that critique is absolutely warranted, even if it applies just as equally between the use of Bible names and post-biblical terms. And so let's go back another step then, and not just talk about Bible names or Bible doctrines, but the issue behind the issue, which is how language works, and, and how we use language. We like to think of language as just a tool for communication, but the, its power is far deeper than that. After all, in Genesis 1, in Psalm 33, it's emphasized that Yahweh made the heavens and earth by speaking. 
that words have creative power. Words have very strong influence. That's why uh, there, there's always been the impetus that the tyrant wants to burn books, wants to suppress communication, because he or she knows the power that's there in words. And those who are in the know recognize the power of language to frame issues and understandings. That, in fact, it's a very powerful function of rhetoric designed to advance a certain agenda. We see this very powerfully in the political realm. Uh, the boundaries of what is realistic is set. And it's even got a term, the Overton window, which means the ideas that are considered possible uh, in, in, in a current conversation. Basically, it ends up being the limits of the popular imagination. And the Overton window will shift, either for good or ill, when it will include ideas that used to not be uh, something that could be allowed in public discourse. Uh, and in fact, terms on issues are deliberately set to lead to certain conclusions. Uh, when somebody tries to talk about taxation as uh, legal theft, they're, they're, they've got an agenda. Uh, likewise, crit criticizing wealth inequality is seen as class warfare, but whenever the wealthy exploit the poor, it's just good business, even though you could call that class warfare just as easily. Uh, consider the massive change in attitudes about homosexuality in America. There's a lot of reasons for it, but one of them was the way of framing it as same-sex relationships or an alternate lifestyle, uh, de-emphasizing the nature of the sexual behavior and put, making it much more about relationships, made it much more argue, harder to argue with in, in those contexts. Those who are against abortion are pro-life, no matter their views on other subjects related to life. Those who at least support legality are pro-choice, who often dehumanize a child in order to justify that position. And we see this very clearly when you don't fit in the binaries. When you don't fit in the either-or. Or you resist the way that people want to frame issues and the way people want to talk about issues. You can try to reframe the conversation to change the discourse, but generally you get steamrolled and associated with whatever side of the framework that people who hear you think that you fit mostly on. They're trying to find the box to fit you in. Those boxes are framed in some way, shape, or form by language. And the same kind of power and framing is not limited to cultural or political issues. It's also very much in Christianity. Interestingly, in the world, if you just hear somebody talking about the church, in the world, that's mostly, most often talking about the Roman Catholic Church. Well, how is that? Well, that's how they frame the rhetoric. that They are the church, the mother church, that everybody else has split off from. Have you ever tried to explain to a Roman Catholic or a mainline Protestant that you aren't really Catholic or Protestant, but you just want to be a Christian? They're just going to label you Protestant, whether you want to accept that label or not. And even there, Protestant, you're protesting something. Uh, the power of that framing. And these power dynamics in terms of language exist, and we need to be aware of them as we speak about the faith. Because part of that whole conversion repentance thing means that we're going to have to retrain and re-explain terms to people because their framework is built by the world and not by the Bible. A lot of people might just dismiss this as simple semantics. And there are probably times in which there could be some semantical games being played when it comes to things like this. But very much so, if people keep hearing a word and thinking it's being used in one way when it's really being used in another, uh, that the word does not mean what they think it means, uh, that's going to cause difficulty in understanding. And until that there can be kind of an, uh, an unlocking of the way the word, word's really being used and, and the way that it really should be framed according to what God has said, uh, it's going to be hard to understand some aspects of the faith. 
We're not going to always be successful in trying to frame and speak truth in the world. The world's going to continue to use its framework. But we can always work at least to purge from ourselves uh, from the false framings uh, that the world has, has, has imbibed in us and that we've drunk from in culture and in, in such things, and to insist on a much more biblical framework for all that we uh, teach and preach. And this leads to another critique that has been heard many times among us, which is talking about the language of Ashdod. Uh, language of Ashdod, that seems kind of strange. Well, it comes from the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 13. And Nehemiah is finishing up uh, his narrative. He's, he talked about all the different issues he's, he's coming across. And he finds in verse 23 that he saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? So, what was going on is that the they were marrying, Jewish men were marrying women from the nations around them, uh, including the, the Philistine women, who at this point are, are Canaanite women. And so they were speaking the language of Ashdod. They were speaking uh, more of a Canaanite dialect. They did not understand the Hebrew that the, the, the scriptures were written in. That was the language of the people. And if they did not know the language of the people of God, they wouldn't understand what was handed down the law of Moses. And that's why language of Ashdod is, is used today in a way of talking about the corruption of language through worldly compromise. Our ancestors in the faith thus saw this framework playing out and warn against perpetuating it. One of the examples we could use about this is the use of Church of Christ as an adjective. When we talk about Church of Christ in a sectarian sense to define uh, ourselves in a very sectarian framework, Church of Christ as opposed to Christian Church, as opposed to Baptist Church, as opposed to Pentecostal Church, and in a world full of these denominations and, and these divisions, it's easy to see us as Church of Christers and them as whatever sect or party with which they associate. And so, in a desire to speak more specifically among those who are without, or even among one another, people hear that talk about Church of Christ school, or a Church of Christ preacher, or, which is very odd, a Church of Christ congregation. It's a very sectarian language of Ashdod, because the New Testament ever talks about Church of Christ this or Church of Christ that. And beyond that, it's just an awful English. Because Church of Christ should never be an adjective, because it's three words. It's not designed to be an adjective. Why not go with Restorationist, if you're going to do that? Or, I mean, you might as well own it and say you're Campbellite. Because what is the functional difference when we're using the term in such a sectarian way? Well, oh, because we say, you know, this Restorationist preacher, or this Campbellite preacher, we're proving sectarian here. Now, well, why is that sectarian, but Church of Christ into an adjective isn't? And it's the same thing. And so we need to resist the language of Ashdod about that. Uh, and, and many other matters where we turn certain phrases or terms that we're using it in, 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 in an accommodative sense to the world in a way that we would would condemn in other contexts. Any type of communication will end up having some accommodations, and this isn't a blanket condemnation of any kind of accommodation. But when we're starting to use terminology in ways that we would rightly condemn in others, 
we're probably falling prey to the language of Ashdod. And look, if we're striving to be simply Christians, then there may be schools associated with some of us. There might be preachers among us, individual congregations among us. We don't need to denominate ourselves, implicitly accepting the denominational framework of the world. He, he's just a preacher, or it's just a school, or it's just it's a church. Uh, and yeah, it's going to be weird to a lot of people outside when you just talk about your fellow Christians as Christians and fellow preachers as preachers and things of that nature. Uh, so, but that's part of the way that we have conversations because we're not accepting the world's framework. Uh, we are challenging the world's framework in these things. So that's why it, it's very important to consider the framing of language. So what do we say about these things? How does this all relate? Well, there's great power in the way language is framed. If we let the powers and principalities set the terms of the discourse, it's going to be very hard to refute error and stand firm on the truth. You, you can't just cede the ground to your opponent. You need to take the fight to the opponent in, in this sense. And so, yes, we need to root our understanding of all things and how we speak of all things in terms of what God has made known in Jesus. This is kind of what Paul's getting at in Colossians chapter 2, looking at Jesus as a, as a treasury of all wisdom, and to be rooted and established in Christ, that it all needs to be based in Christ. And, and therefore, we, we should absolutely allow the scriptures to inform how we speak. In fact, the Psalms were made for repetition, chanting and singing. That memorizing scripture has its merits. That if we're saturated in God's words that he's communicated to us, we're going to be less likely to import a foreign framework or structure from the world into it and into our view of God in Christ. And if we pepper our language with biblical allusions, we are speaking the words of God, speaking the words of life to others, and that can give grace to those who hear. We've seen the great danger of the language of Ashdod, giving into the ways that others frame language, to use that language accommodatively in such a way as to give credence to things that we would otherwise rightly condemn as inconsistent with God as made known in Jesus. But Bible names for Bible doctrines, as appealing as it might sound to some, is in no guarantee in and of itself, because there's an even more pernicious danger out there. And that most pernicious danger is to use a Bible name or term, but in a distorted way not fully consistent with the way God used it. It's very much like when Israel, in the days of Jeroboam in 1 Kings 12, made a golden calf and called it Yahweh. It's a much more pernicious evil than having an idol and calling it something else. Because it's one thing to have an idol of Baal and call it Baal. But to actually make an image of the one true God who can, of whom you cannot make an image, and then call that image Yahweh, you are now leading to a double distortion, because it's idolatry and you're distorting the way they understand the nature of God. So it is when Bible words get used in ways the Bible doesn't, because people think, oh, look, that's a Bible word, and they are more likely to fall for that deception. It can be done very easily with words, like worship, for instance. What's the functional modern definition of worship in English? Functionally, it's going to church. It's what you do in church. You may protest, well, wait a second, wait a second. The word worship has these things about, you know, Honoring God, showing reverence to God. Yeah, 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 sure. There's there's the the, the more formal technical definition that people want to get into and, and try to associate it with what's going on in Greek and Hebrew. But if you just ask people who go to church what worship means, think that's what they're going to show you. Because functionally, the way the term gets used is to describe 
going to church, and what you do at church. Now, in the Bible, we have the word shahak in Hebrew, proskuneo in Greek, which means prostration or to render obeisance. It's, a, it's an actual behavior. It is a gesture of demonstrating humiliation through prostration. There's also another word, avad or latriuo in Hebrew and Greek respectively, which means service or ministration to God. Now, what the scriptures will speak of as its own act of displaying subservience or humiliation, or what the scriptures speak of as religious service, get turned into one specific expression of service, i.e. in church. And this leads to misunderstandings and distortion and disputation abound, and all over the place, because people are arguing the shock Proskuneo definition against the Avalatrio definition, even though those are distinct Hebrew-Greek words with distinct meanings, although often used in parallel, and the English word worship has now subsumed all of these and then restricted to a certain specific expression of it. We need to go back to use these words much more consistently with the way the Bible uses them. It's not just about words, though. It could also be about doctrines which involve words, like the position about the word only. The word only is a suggestion that the Holy Spirit acts only through the word. And some adherents of this view will try to give pride of place to the Spirit in understanding their doctrines of the Holy Spirit primarily working through the word of God today. There are a lot, though, who will conflate even further, suggesting that whatever the Spirit does, the word does. And so because of that conflation, wherever a lot of Christians will see Spirit in the text, or Holy Spirit, they will think the Word in terms of Scripture. Now, in this instance, it may seem harmless to those who adhere to such a doctrine, but what you're really doing there is the product of a person of the Godhead, the Scriptures, is now supplanting that person in priority and consideration. They don't look at Word and think Spirit. No, they think, see Spirit and think Word. They are confusing the author for the thing. And it becomes all the more difficult to demonstrate to such a person the ways in which the Spirit works beyond just communicating the Word, which are demonstrated in many passages in Romans 8, um, 2 Thessalonians 3, uh, and many others. Now, Word is a word used in Scripture, right? And, and so they're reading Scripture and they're seeing Spirit. They're seeing the Spirit in Scripture, but they're thinking Word because their understanding of what those words mean and, and how they relate is, has been distorted. And so it's not enough to just use Bible names. We need to use Bible names properly, to use them in communication the way God intended. And so we do well to give thought to how we use language and whether we're falling into the various pitfalls of the language of Ashdode to capitulate to the framework of the world or to distort the very words that God used. So when we look at Bible names for Bible doctrines, it really does mislead as much as it might help. Because it's less about the precise words used, and more about simplicity and clarity and communication. Every Bible word, at some point, was used in the Bible for the first time. Before it was used in the Bible, it was not a Bible word. And as manifest in Scripture, God's concern throughout has been to communicate His word to His people in ways in which they could understand it. He did not use pretentious language, but it is the common Hebrew of the Israelites, the common Greek of the first century world. Again, Paul insisted the gospel was preached to the Corinthians in simplicity, not with fancy rhetoric. That they, you can see it when you translate it compared to the rhetoric that we read uh, from, the, from more polished Greek authors. Uh, there's absolutely, definitely an attempt to, to really put the emphasis on the communication. 
And so, when we make the issue the word used, we really sometimes can miss the point, because it's really less about are we using Bible words or words after the Bible, as much as making sure that the words that we're using properly express what God intended to communicate. That they are defined in ways everybody understands what's being said, and that it's they're being used to make clear and plain what God has made known in the Scriptures and in Jesus. Having said that, the critique behind Bible Dancer Bible Doctrines, though, what the concern was that led people to suggest Bible Dancer Bible Doctrines, is completely on point and worth considering, and that's the tendency to use language to manipulate, to distort, and to advance error. We've seen how the use of certain terms could obfuscate, could cause confusion where God had spoken with some clarity, and all just to justify later practices and traditions. We've considered the dangers of the language of Ashdod and warned about the power of how language gets framed in rhetoric and to use more biblical paradigms for discussion and thought. And of course, in a savage irony, even Bible names can fall under the same critique when biblical words are not being used as God originally intended, but according to later distortions in meaning. And so, in the end, the issue is less about the language itself and more about how the language is used. That we ought to use language to speak precisely and clearly and as plainly as possible what God has made known to proclaim it to everyone and to live by it. And thus, may we grab hold of eternal life in God and Christ and may we obtain the resurrection of life to live and embody the truth which he has spoken. We're so glad that you've joined us. We hope that you've been benefited by this. If so, we encourage you to uh, share it with friends, family, others on social media. If you have any questions or comments about anything that we've talked about, if you'd like to discuss it further, uh, if you have a prayer request, if you'd like to learn more about us or come check us out, please find us online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on uh, various forms of social media. If you'd like to get hold of me personally, you can reach me at my website, DeVerboVitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.